Hello and welcome to Web of Tomorrow. I'm Adam Garrett Harris, and today I'm talking with Richard Feldman, author of Elm in Action. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I saw you you talk at um, Framework Summit. Oh yeah, that was that was a really cool talk where you just described Elm, of course, and we got to see talks from lots of other different front end frameworks. And I saw your front end master's course, and I thought it was really really cool. Oh, the way you're teaching and how you're just so excited about it. And that <laughs> that really drew me to Elm even maybe more than the language itself. Wow. Well, thank you. That's <laughs> that's very kind of you to say. And so, yeah, I wanted to talk to you on, on here because I'm interested in what you do and, and what um, Elm is all about. And your book just came out pretty recently, right? Uh, yeah, I think in April. Yeah. Yeah. So a few months. So what is your your book all about in a nutshell? So Elm in Action is essentially a book that's uh, aimed at people who have no experience with Elm, no experience with functional programming, and perhaps no experience with web development, although it does assume a little bit of uh, like web basics like HTML and CSS. But even if you don't really know web development, you can probably get through the book okay, um, except for the chapter on JavaScript interop, which of course assumes you know some stuff about JavaScript, but that's only one of the chapters. Um and the goal of the book is to teach Elm in the context of building an application. So the first chapter is basically about uh, basic syntax and stuff, kind of the nuts and bolts that you need to know to know any language. And then every other chapter is about building an application from start to finish. So in the, in the second chapter, you build the beginnings of the app. And then every chapter after that, um, you add on features to the app or make changes to it. And in the course of doing that, you're learning more and more about the language until by the end of it, you have a complete working single page app that does, it talks to servers, it does JavaScript interop, um, and, uh, and sort of you're ready to go and and make your own Elm applications. Awesome. Is that what the in action series is generally like where you're building something? Yeah, not necessarily an application, but in action generally means um, it's it's focused on sort of practical applications as opposed to, for example, theory. Um, this is definitely not a theory book. Mm. Yeah, and what what is Elm? So Elm is a pure functional programming language that compiles to JavaScript. Um, so where you've got like uh, TypeScript and Dart and CoffeeScript, all of which are similar enough to JavaScript that I think they can reasonably be called uh, JavaScript dialects in the case of TypeScript and uh well, I guess CoffeeScript and Dart, maybe you could say those are uh, not JavaScript dialects, but CoffeeScript did at one point have a tagline of it's just JS, just like TypeScript does now. Um, and yeah. and Dart is also a language that's just obviously very, very, very similar to JavaScript. Um, Elm is a totally different language. I mean, it's it's as different to JavaScript as Ruby is or Python is or, you know, uh, Kotlin. Um, it's just its own language, and it just happens to use JavaScript as a compilation target so that you can build web apps with it. So Elm's tagline is a delightful language for building reliable web apps. And uh, it's really just uh, honestly totally changed my perspective on web development. Um, ever since I got started with it, um, I've really just totally fallen in love with it and and just never wanted to go back uh, <laughs> to using JavaScript yeah. anymore. Um, and at this point in my career, I think it's safe to say that I'm, I'm probably just never going to take a JavaScript job ever again because I've just become so spoiled by Elm. Um, and uh, in a good way, you know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's just become such a positive experience. And now there's so many companies that are using Elm um, that, you know, I, I have the option that I, I, I could do that with the rest of my career if I want to. Um, and uh, it, it's just been such a like wonderful experience for me that I, I have 
grown in, in the community and, and sort of um, and taken on this uh, role of an educator. Um, so I've done, like you mentioned, the course on front end masters. Um, I've taught lots of in person workshops. I spent at this point, more than a hundred hours just standing in a classroom, in different classrooms, of course, um, like teaching people Elm in person, uh, and and of course the book Elm in Action. Yeah. Um, not to mention like blog posts and libraries and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that's uh kind of how it uh, fits together. Yeah, and you you mentioned your experience teaching in workshops in different places. How how has your experience teaching in person affected the way that you approach writing a book? Oh, that's a great question. Um. Yeah, I guess the main way that it helped is um, just getting to see what kinds of things trip people up and what kinds of things people figure out on their own. Mm. Um, something that I've learned, especially in a workshop format, uh, is that when you have a, like a limited amount of time to teach people, uh, it's it's not only important what you include, but also it's important what you leave out oh. because uh, it's it's pretty easy for people to get overwhelmed with lots of new information. So the more things that you can cut out and just have confidence that people will figure them out on their own or the compiler will help them out. Um, or, you know, it's something that they don't need to learn right now because they can just Google it later. Um, the, the better the learning experience is going to be. And I think that does translate pretty well into a, into a book context in the sense that although you don't have a, as hard a time constraint as you do with an in-person workshop, um, you do have the constraint that, you know, people's time is limited. Um, people don't necessarily uh, want to keep going with a book that's that's too slow paced. Um, so I, I think that's helped me understand what are the things that I can leave out of the book and say, you know, or, or maybe just make a little aside that's like a, a sentence or two about, you know, by the way, there's this other thing, but we're not going to get into that now. Um, as opposed to, you know, having lots of digressions about things that I, before I did the workshops, might not have realized were things that, you know, I didn't need to include. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to get bogged down in, in the details, especially when you're, you're an expert at it and you want to explain it to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get into a little bit about how did you first hear about Elm and what were you doing before and, and what attracted you to it? Yeah, sure. Um, so before I heard about Elm, uh, I had, well, I guess, um, I got into programming at a young age, like lots of people. Um, and, uh, and when I was working professionally, I was sort of doing full stack um, web development. I, I'd done like some client side stuff in the past. And uh, and uh, I, yeah, I, I guess I had decided at the point where I found Elm that I wanted to sort of focus on front end um, and b- building web app UIs. And uh, at the time, my preferred language of choice was CoffeeScript because in like 2011, 2013, that was like a, a very popular language. Um, not so much anymore, but at the time it was. And uh I found out about Elm because, uh, by coincidence, I was in the market for a language that was just like Elm because I had this friend um, who was a coworker of mine, and uh, he sort of uh, his name is Deech uh, or Aditya Siram is his name, but he he goes by Deech on Twitter. Um, he basically sort of opened my eyes to this world of functional programming and uh, introduced me to like um, Lisp and Haskell and all these languages that I, I hadn't heard of before, where previously I was sort of like, well, I know CoffeeScript and JavaScript and Java and Perl. And uh, I didn't realize how similar all the languages I'd used before were to one another. And that there were, um, there were other languages that sort of were different in ways that I, I didn't realize could be different. Mm. Um and so he'd sort of convinced me that, um, in particular, Haskell was was worth my time to to try out. But uh, I, I wanted to focus on web app UIs, and there was really no viable way to compile Haskell to that um, at the time. 
there was GHCJS, but um, it had pretty well known performance problems that meant that I didn't really want to get invested into it and then just find that the app was not going to work out. I don't know <laughs> if that's still true, but it was true when I was looking into it. Um, and uh, so around the same time, um, React came out and uh, I, I started using React and using it at work and I really liked it. Um, and so uh, I was getting excited about PureScript, um, which was sort of uh, positioning itself to be checking all the boxes of what I was looking for based on my conversations with Deech. But um, it didn't quite yet have a virtual DOM story like React did. And so I was sort of cheerleading. There's like some GitHub comments of me on early like uh, PureScript React repos just like commenting like, hey, you know, I don't I don't know enough Haskell to contribute to this, but I'm really pulling for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, but, but it, it, uh, while I was waiting for that to happen, um, Elm, which, which actually had been around for a while, but if you looked at the Elm website at the time, it was all like game demos. It was all, um, like 2d graphics or 3d graphics. And it was not really, uh, on the, on the web. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it was all browser stuff. It was like canvas and WebGL. Um, so they had like the Mario demo and the like <laughs> other Mario themed demos like Thwomp, uh, but it, it, I remember looking at it and being like, well, this seems like at a language level, it does the type of stuff I want, but I couldn't really use this to build the type of applications that I want to build. Um, but uh, that was only true temporarily because while I was waiting for PureScript to get a virtual DOM library, um, this blog post came out called Blazing Fast HTML in Elm. And it essentially announced the release of the Elm HTML library, which was a virtual DOM for Elm. And not only that, but it was actually... Uh, building on some of the optimizations that David Nolan had come up for um, with ClojureScript and Ohm and basically use that same kind of optimization technique to uh, make something that was outperforming React and outperforming uh, Angular and Ember and like all the big frameworks of the day. Um, And so I was like, wow, not only is this not a performance concern, it seems like it's actually a performance benefit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I finished the blog post and kind of pretty soon thereafter decided that I was going to give it a shot. And I, I decided to re- rewrite my um, side project that I'd been working on, which is previously a React app in Elm uh, and just had an amazing experience. Just totally fell in love with the language and, and never looked back. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. I've heard a little bit about that um, side project you're working on where you're writing a novel and you wanted some software <laughs> yeah. to help you with that. Are you still trying to still writing novels? No, I, um, I mean, that's the, that's kind of the irony of it is um, I, so I was writing this novel. Um, initially, I, I started out doing it in Google Docs. And then I, I found that as it got longer and longer, it was like causing Google Docs to kind of choke on the file size. Um, I also don't know if that's still true, but that it was true at the time that it was it was a serious performance problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started looking around, okay, like what what kind of novel writing software is there? And I found that there was nothing that really kind of fit the bill of what I was looking for. So I decided, well, I'm a programmer. I'll scratch my own itch. And I, I started making my own app. Um, and I used it a lot. I wrote tens of thousands of words in that, um, in the JavaScript version, then another tens of thousands of words in the Elm version. Um, but what happened was that, uh, I just started just getting so into Elm and, uh, eventually I spent less and less time on writing like uh, like novel writing and more and more time on writing Elm, um, to the point where eventually I just kind of put the novel back on the shelf and I, I really haven't touched it in several years. I, I got like 80,000 words and I have a friend who like really wants me to finish it. And uh-huh. so I, I feel like I owe it to him to finish it. Cause he's like a, he's like the number one fan of the novel. <laughs> um, nice. But uh, I mean, I, I really don't have any regrets um, because I, I've just been 
like the outcome has been so overall positive for me. I mean, I, I, I guess the biggest irony is that I started and then finished another book, namely Elven Action, uh, while right. <laughs> pausing the, the book that got me into Elven in the first place. Yeah, I've I've had another guest on the show before who's a software engineer who wrote r- writes novels and he's written some software to help him write oh, novels, nice. but it's more about um helping people test read the novel. Uh, interesting. So they can kind of see where they stop reading and so maybe that's a boring part hmm. or something. Oh, well, I mean uh, that is definitely interesting. Um I I would have uh definitely appreciated getting like heuristics on that assuming people are okay with having that data collected about them um yeah. but uh yeah i uh i was actually more interested in helping myself organize things um like i i found that similar to programming like once a code base gets past a certain size uh it gets really hard to keep everything in your head um in, in one sure. person's head and i mean the same is true of a novel like once it gets past a certain amount of point i'm like oh wait a minute like has this like I, i'd go in and try to make a refactor i'd be like well okay i want to change this thing to happen in this scene because otherwise it's going to mess things up like six scenes from now and i'd be like wait wait, wait. now but now has this thing been introduced yet or is it not going to make sense when you get there you know when you yeah. read this part like have i have i no longer set something else up like did i break something um and so answering questions like that and another one of the fundamental ones was just sort of balance like are are the chapters like um a reasonable length or is one of them like you know way longer than the others and i, I wanted to have a faster way to answer that question than just like mm-hmm. read the entire chapter and see how it feels um to decide where to move things around so yeah more on the editing side than the or the creating side than the yeah. reading side I feel like I, I'm like you. I would never be able to write a novel because I'd always want to write some software to help me write it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I feel you. So let's get into Elm a little bit. Some of the details about Elm. It's yeah. it's pure, purely functional. What in yep. what does that mean exactly? So all Elm functions are pure, which means that if I write an Elm function, uh, I have a language level guarantee that if I call that function passing the same arguments, it will return the same answer. And it won't do any side effects. So that's true of every single Elm language, Elm uh, function in the whole language. Um, the obvious question that comes after that is, well, hang on, if every function is pure, then how do you do anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it, it's actually kind of funny to me that this question persists because, um, I mean, we have like at work, we have about 400,000 lines of Elm code you know, running in production, which we've been building up since like 2015. Um, and, you know, it, it's been going great. We, uh, we have like millions of users and, <laughs> it's a very well exercised, well battle tested code base. And it's like, obviously, you know, we, we do do effects. Like we talk to servers and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but the short answer is that essentially, uh, I, the, I like to use the analogy of promises in JavaScript. So in JavaScript, that's kind of the preferred way to do asynchronous um, effect chaining. Like you make a promise and then you can chain it together with other promises. Um, and in JavaScript, right when you instantiate a promise, uh, it, immediately runs the effect that you requested like if you do a fetch like right when you make that promise it'll immediately do the fetch so in elm we have a thing called task which is a lot like a promise but the only difference is or or the main difference is that right when you instantiate the task it doesn't run the effect yet Um, but rather you have these functions that sort of chain them together and then you know return them and then at the end of the day um, you have a runtime like the elm runtime which automatically takes you know all of these composed together tasks and runs them all for you. So as an Elm author, I don't write any functions that are not pure. Every function that I write is pure. Some of them will return a task or a related thing called a command. Um, but that's just a data structure that's sort of describing what I want done. Um, 
And at the end of the day, it's it's the runtime that takes care of executing things, much like the JavaScript runtime takes care of details like memory management and and, and so forth. Uh, the Elm runtime takes care of not only memory management, but also um, when to run effects. So we call it managed effects instead of side effects. Hmm. But it feels about the same as using promises, <laughs> to be honest. Okay. So that applies for getting user data, fetching data from an API, or displaying something on the in the DOM? Um, so Elm's built-in virtual DOM, uh, you, you don't actually need to use like side effects for that. So like in React, you need to imperatively say like, you know, render this, you know, uh, React component into this DOM element. So like in, in React, it would be one place in your app usually where you say that? Right. So uh, instead of there being one place where you say that, uh, like by convention in Elm, it just literally is like right when you start up your program, you like give it the ID that you want to like render everything into. And then that's how you, that's a prerequisite of starting up your Elm app is providing, you know, that one element. And then Elm's okay. like, cool, I'm going to re- render everything into there. So yeah, I mean, pretty similar, just a different API really. Cool. And then w- what are some differences or similarities with JavaScript? Um, similarities, I would say uh, a lot, like if you're writing a functional style of JavaScript, I would say mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of uh, similarities. So you'll see like, um, immutable data like everything in every, all values in elm are immutable um and also const so it's as if you uh didn't have a let or var keyword you only had const um and if you had uh every every value that you created was immutable like deeply immutable like you could not you know mutate it and affect other things um which if you're writing a functional style javascript you're probably trying not to do uh, yeah but, but elm- you're using self-discipline right so in elm there is no need for discipline because it's just built for that um, and similarly, like instead of avoiding side effects, you just have all the APIs are designed around managed effects anyway. So, um, you're all set there too. Uh, so putting all those things together, um, those create like, uh, some level of familiarity with, um, you know, what you might be familiar with if, if you're doing like a functional style JavaScript. Um, the main difference would be that, uh, the fact that you have these as guarantees rather than things that you're doing, um, with discipline, it's not just that you don't have to be as disciplined. And it's not just that like every package in the entire package ecosystem, because Elm of course has its own package manager, um, which in my opinion or my experience is much nicer than NPM. Uh, I actually <laughs> had to do some like stuff with NPM recently. And I was like, Oh God, mm-hmm. why? Um, yep. But uh, it's, it's not just that those things are easier, but also it's that, and, and this is the part that I didn't realize was like out there until I actually tried it and got a feel for it personally. Um, it's that it unlocks all of these additional things, like all these amazing experiences, especially around refactoring and code maintenance that I just didn't really have any concept of until I had sort of experienced them because they're just not at all possible in JavaScript functional style or not. Um, things like, uh, I, I guess the, the long and short of it is like whenever I'm making changes in Elm, if I'm if I want to move a chunk of code around or I want to change like how some big part of my application works, no, pretty much no matter how invasive the change is, um, after I'm done moving stuff around, once it compiles again, I expect it to work with no regressions, and that's normally what happens. Like it's it's very very rare that um, uh, after I make a <laughs> small or large change in an Elm application, uh, after it compiles again, that it does not just work without any regressions. Um, but I mean, if that ever does happen, it's, it's this like sort of shocking thing where I'm like, wait, 
it did it didn't work what <laughs> uh, like that's but weird it, but it compiled <laughs> and i'm not saying it never happens i mean it definitely does happen mm-hmm. um but it's so rare uh whereas in javascript and uh, i mean and maybe you know there are typescript experts who are out there who are like oh yeah that's this is totally how it is in typescript but i've never heard anyone say that and the people mm-hmm. i know who do typescript at work and elm on the side are like yeah this is not even close it's like elm is completely different than typescript mm-hmm. um it it it's really just my experience with JavaScript was almost the opposite where like, I mean, after I'm, you know, I've gotten it to compile, like I usually expect that something is still broken and I need to go fix more stuff. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to sort of convey that without, I don't know, unless you've experienced it firsthand. Um, but it, it really feels like a superpower. Like it, it feels like I'm doing um, just less work as a programmer, hmm. it feels like I, I, I've just like offloaded this chunk of toil to the compiler. Um, that's just not my responsibility anymore. It's really liberating. And do you need to write less tests in Elm? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- there's a lot of stuff that I used to test in JavaScript where it's like, it's not actually possible. Like it's not possible to write the Elm test because the test would not compile. Like if you tried to uh-huh. break your program in that way, the compiler would catch it. So you can't even write a test that attempts to reproduce the thing that's broken in JavaScript. It's not even reproducible. Um, just, gotcha. just the, the <laughs> compiler just catches that for you. That's great. Not everything. Like, I, I mean, I, I did like make the, the main testing library that everybody uses Elm test. Um, so I definitely am a big believer in tests, but uh, I, I'm also a big believer in, you know, not writing useless tests. And I like that Elm makes a lot of tests, you know, effectively useless by catching the problems, you know, earlier in the pipeline. Gotcha. Yeah. What about runtime errors with Elm? <laughs> um so for a long time, I used to be able to say we have never gotten a runtime error in production in Elm. Um, and then in 2018, we got our first one. Uh, <laughs> basically, um, so it's the Elm APIs are designed to make it, it, it is possible to get a runtime exception in Elm, um, but it's also extremely rare. Uh, like I used to have fun at like the early Elm conferences. Um, I just like, uh, so back in like, I don't know, 2016, maybe 2015, um, So certainly in 2015, there weren't that many companies using Elm. It was like a pretty uh, like hobbyist kind of a thing, um, Mm -hmm. community wise. Now it's like lots of people are using it at work. Um, But but back then it was like kind of exciting when when we had like the first Elm conference. And I remember asking all the other speakers like, hey, you know, are using Elm at work? And it was at the time it was only like 50 50. Now it's just like everybody. Um, But those who were using it at work, I'd ask them like, hey, have you gotten any runtime exceptions yet in production? And they'd be like, no, no, no. Every single one of them including us at work at the time, like nobody had gotten a single runtime exception in production. Um, And the reason for that is just that the compiler is really, really good at catching these things. Um, And the APIs are all designed to work in concert with the compiler to, to help you find stuff earlier in the process than that. And and specifically like the compiler finding like type mismatches and stuff. Um, Part of this is that Elm doesn't have null or undefined. So you just, that whole category of things is just gone. Like you don't Mm. have null errors or, you know, undefined is not a function. That's just impossible to have in Elm. Um, Another part of it is that uh, like the the APIs in general try to um, like prioritize uh, explicit error handling um, in a way where uh, you sort of like can't forget to do it. Um, Which is also nice because it's sort of, uh, surfaces points where maybe like by default your users would get a bad experience but the fact that you're sort of like reminded like oh yeah this is there's a potential deviation from the happy path here um is a nice reminder to try and like handle that gracefully and show your user like a helpful error message instead of just like you know blowing up and the screen just like goes blank or you know like the Mm -hmm. rendering freezes um 
so yeah, I mean, uh, we, we, for a long time we had that until finally um, we did get our first one, and it was it was us. Like, I mean, the, the specific thing that happened was um, we had a a, a drop down, and we had a, a a pattern match on like looking at the um, the name of the the drop down element that came back. So like, you know, we had this explicit list of like things in the drop down uh, that you know there are these hard coded strings of like depending on which element you selected. And we thought, well, there's no possible way that we could get anything other than one of these strings. So we just wrote an explicit, um, this is not <laughs> part of Elm anymore, but at the time there was a thing called debug.crash, uh, which was intended <laughs> to be used when you're like, um, well, the original intent of it actually was for prototyping. It wasn't, it was, that's why I was in the debug module. It wasn't supposed to be used in production, but we did it anyway. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, somehow at some point we got a string in there that was not one of the ones that was in the original dropdown, which theoretically is impossible but our theory was that somebody had like a malicious browser extension or something that was just like spamming all the event handlers with like you know garbage strings trying to trigger something that's the only thing we could think of um and uh and somehow it because the string that came in was empty string which for a drop down event like that shouldn't that should never happen um but anyway, uh, so in the current release of Elm, that's like you, you uh, when you do a production optimized build, like um, it gives you an error if you're still using the debug module anywhere because it's just intended for you know debugging and development. Yeah. Um, so we wouldn't have been able to uh, do that thing that we did that <laughs> figured our first uh, runtime error. Maybe we still have a clean record at this point. But the point is, yeah, I mean, in that same time, we've logged you know tens of thousands of JavaScript runtime exceptions from our legacy JS, you know. Um, and the stuff we did before Elm. So it's not that we're like perfect programmers or anything. It's, it's just, that's just a normal experience with Elm is, is it yeah. tends to not crash. The, th- the thing I love about that is that story is it's not that you one time had a certain kind of runtime exception that was happening a lot. It was literally oh, yeah, no. <laughs> one user one time. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's funny because um, we've actually had conversations about this where like, we're not sure if we should keep, uh our our generic like this is actually a debate we've recently had at work um whether we should keep our generic like runtime exception handler activated in Mm. in um in our front end because honestly the entire amount like anytime anyone goes through to triage those errors it is always either something from our legacy js where we're like we know about this but like we're not it's just like never getting prioritized to touch that because it's like on this old page and, you know, we're probably going to rewrite it in Elm at some point anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, and and this is like almost every single one of these. I mean, it's it's like overwhelming majority. It's just some browser extension doing something bad. Like it's trying to hit some like Russian domain, you know, because it's like (laughs) malware or it's like doing something where it messes with the DOM and breaks something else, you know? Mm, And and so like, um, and uh and honestly we're just like what value are we getting out of this like it's not telling us about like anything that we didn't already know like it, and it hasn't in a couple of years so should we even leave this on <laughs> um i don't know i mean we haven't decided but um, it, it, at the same time it feels like kind of scary to to lose that insight um yeah but we are spending a lot of time like just not getting any value out of it so it's kind of hard mm-hmm. to justify <laughs> All right. If someone is considering using Elm on a side project or at work, where is Elm not a good fit? Oh, um, so the main thing that comes to mind is if you very specifically are trying to stitch together um, a bunch of like JavaScript libraries, like precise JavaScript libraries. Like I I know um, 
one company was using Elm, and then um, they ended up switching away uh, to ClojureScript, actually, um, because uh, ClojureScript has very seamless JavaScript interrupt. Because ClojureScript is not um, a pure language. It's not pure functional. It's, uh, it's a sort of a functional programming style, for sure, um, as languages go. But uh, it doesn't have that purity restriction that Elm has, which means that in the middle of a ClojureScript function, you can just call a JavaScript function like it's nothing. It's it's like very, very seamless interop. Whereas in Elm, if you want to talk to JavaScript, you kind of do it in this sort of like, um, you can think of it as like client server or maybe as like a pub sub like event style where you basically say like, hey, JavaScript, I'm sending you this message that says like, I want you to do this thing. And the mm-hmm. JavaScript, on the JavaScript side, you have like an event list and it's like, oh, got it, Elm wants this thing. I'll go do it and then pass the value back. Um, so there's more overhead there, which, yeah, you know, is actually, uh, from my perspective, quite a nice thing because although it is more overhead, which, you know, nobody likes overhead, um, it keeps this very strong separation between the JavaScript world and the Elm world. And it really helps us narrow down problems because if, if, if we ever get like, you know, in our logs, like undefined is not a function, we always look at it, it's like, where did that come from? Oh yeah, it came from the JavaScript side, no problem. Um, so the fact that those can't sort of like blend together and, uh, and obscure where like the sources of those errors are coming from is really nice because they're, you know, the JavaScript rules are very different. Um, but uh, this company that I know, um, what they were building was specifically a tool where their users would integrate lots of different plugins, like arbitrary JavaScript plugins into their app. Um, and so that having that additional friction when like mainly what they were doing was stitching together JavaScript stuff was like a big pain point for them, understandably so. Um, that's kind of abnormal. Like it's not normal that that's like what like most web apps are not doing that. Right. Um, so I, I'm very comfortable by default recommending Elm to basically everyone. Um, but if you're doing something specifically like that, um, or like another example would be uh, if you need to do something that, I don't know, um, uses like very heavily uses web APIs where Elm doesn't have first class support, like WebRTC, um, I might think twice, but uh, I would honestly probably still use Elm unless it like the, that integration was really sort of pervasive like throughout the app because if i mean i definitely know people who have done stuff with elm and WebRTC. um they just you know for the WebRTC part of it they had to use javascript interop um so yeah i, I think like the, the the sort of the theme here is that the more that you know you specifically need to integrate with the javascript ecosystem as opposed to just sort of building your own app um or, or using off-the-shelf stuff like Elm definitely has, you know, its own package ecosystem, but of course it's not as big as NPM. Like NPM's the biggest package ecosystem in the world. You know, there's really no competing with that. Um, if you know that like most of your time is going to be spent just stitching together off the shelf stuff, um, as opposed to like building your own application, uh, like, you know, sort of uh, custom to your problem domain, um, mm-hmm. then yeah, I mean, like, why bother? Uh, might, might as well, you know, if it's going to be that quick, you know, just yeah, slap together the MTN things, call it a day. Um, but I, again, I, I think most people who are building web applications have a, the biggest problem they have is actually like dealing with the complexity and uh, like long-term maintenance of, you know, a lot of hand, like stuff that they wrote in house. And that's where Elm yeah. shines. Do you use Elm for just quick prototypes? Oh, <laughs> uh, we do now. Yeah. At, at work. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, I haven't actually had a like uh, web app front end side project the, since Dreamwriter, um, where like it would have made sense to use any like Elm or JavaScript or anything. Um, <laughs> ironically, most of my side projects since then have been CLIs for Elm, <laughs> like just Elm tooling. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, at work we also prototype in Elm. Um, the uh, I would say like when I first got 
started in Elm, I still felt honestly, I still felt the most comfortable just using jQuery for prototyping because I'm I'm old school enough that I remember when jQuery came out. <laughs> like yeah. I, I I learned JavaScript in like 2000, um, and uh, I I just felt like I was the most productive just slapping these together with jQuery if I knew I was going to throw it away anyway. Um, but these days, honestly, I don't even feel more productive in in jQuery or React or any anything JavaScripty than I do in Elm. So I'll just make it in Elm from the get go. Yeah, and what if you're making like a kind of a, a static site generator type thing? You know, you could, if it's very static, you could do HTML, but what if it's like generated? Does Elm have something like that? Yeah, there's a, it's a, it's called Elm pages. Um, and it's a static site generator where you write Elm. Um, I haven't used any static site generator, uh, including Elm pages. Um, I just haven't had a static site to maintain in a long time. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, so, I mean, I know the people who made Elm pages and they tend to make very good stuff. Um, so I would recommend checking it out, but I can't, I don't have any firsthand experience with it. Yeah. You mentioned the package library and it's not yeah. as big as NPM, but NPM is huge. So how is <laughs> yeah. the Elm package library doing? Like how, how big is it? What kind of stuff is in there? Uh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know what the stats are. I know that it's like thousands of packages, but I don't mm-hmm. know how many thousands. Um, and uh, my general experience with it has been that uh, if you're trying to do a particular common thing, more likely than not, um, there's, there's a package for it, but there may not be like, you know, 10 different ones to choose from, which actually can be kind of nice, but also like can be not nice if it's like the one that you pick is like, well, this doesn't quite do it the way that I wanted it to do it. Um, the other thing about it is, that, uh, on average, my experience has been that the packages in, in the Elm package repo are very high quality compared to like NPM, like an NPM. I spent a lot of time sort of sifting through like, cruft and maybe that's just because like you know there just are, are fewer there but it's not like there's a a lower number of packages and the quality is on average the same as npm i would say that the quality on average is a lot higher and there is a lot fewer packages um so like for example there, there are two um different charting libraries that i know of in elm um one's made by Teresa sicole who's my um co-worker the other one's called um elm visualization and both of them are like really nice, but they have pretty different like design philosophies. So Elm visualization is kind of more in the spirit of D3 where it's like um, just like a, a very like large variety of different visualizations and like highly customizable. Whereas Teresa's library is a lot more focused on like helping you do a really good job. So she spent a lot of time like looking at like Edward Tufte and like what are the visualization mm-hmm. best practices and how can I design the library that makes it easy for you to like do a good job making effective visualizations. So on the one hand, it gives you less control than Elm visualization. Um, but on the other hand, it also makes it easier to like, you know, sort of follow best practices. Um, if you if you don't already have like a really strong preference for like exactly how you want to do those things yourself. Um, so I think that those two libraries are pretty good examples of the types of um, things that you get in the Elm package ecosystem where like usually if there already is a really good thing the only reason somebody will make a different thing is if they think they can have a pretty different take on that same thing um and uh that's that's kind of generally been my experience with it um so i have been a lot happier dealing with the elm package ecosystem than the um npm ecosystem uh you also don't get all these like security warnings about like prototype pollution because that just doesn't exist in elm um you don't have like vulnerabilities to like 
worms that can spread through install scripts because Elm doesn't have that either. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that I don't have to worry about, <laughs> which I really appreciate. Nice. Yeah, that's impressive that she uh, focused on Edward Tufty's or Tuft. I don't know how you say it. I think it's Tufty. I could be wrong. Yeah, because I've, I've looked at his book. That's not light reading. Oh, yeah. Well, he's got four of them, I think. Um, okay. I looked at one of them. Yeah, he has at least four because I own them. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, um, I definitely appreciate both approaches because sometimes, you know, like your boss is like, make me a pie chart. And you're like, no, no, but pie charts are better for you know, spatial understanding uh-huh. humans. But, you know, it's like, no, I got to have a pie chart. Um, so Teresa's library does not have pie charts. But <laughs> but if your nice. boss says make a pie chart, you know, you got to make a pie chart. Uh, what, what can you do? And what is the Elm community like? Where do people go to talk and ask questions? And what's that like? Oh yeah, great question. Um, so I would say that the two places that I would recommend first and foremost would be Elm Slack and Elm Discourse. Um, so I think actually both of those, if you go to elmlang.org/community, um, just verify this right now. Yes, those are the first two uh, things that are linked to in the Elm community. Elm Elm-lang.org/community. Um, there are also like Reddit and there's a Twitter account um, and there are lots of Elm meetups, or at least there used to be before the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually like, it's like one of the main things that I miss is like uh, pre pandemic. I, I, because I live in Philadelphia, I, um, which is only like a two ish hour bus ride to New York. Um, I used to go to the Philly Elm meetup, which I run and the New York Elm meetup every month, uh, which is nice, but uh, now not so much. Um, they're also, mm-hmm. uh, Elm conferences, which again, pre pandemic, like we had four Elm conferences in 2019. Um, and there was going to be Elm Japan for the first year this, uh, in 2020, but it got canceled as, as did all the other ones. Um, sadly, but, uh, that's, you know, uh, hopefully they'll be coming back after all of this, whenever this changes <laughs> the whole situation. Um, but yeah, as far as like looking for a way to meet up with people, um, I would go to Slack first because people are just like, super friendly, super helpful. And I think you just get a nice sense of like the warmth of the community and, and how welcoming it is on Slack. Um, discourse, I think is a good place to like have discussions, like have a more long form nature um, and like ask, you know, beginner questions, but you can kind of do beginner questions on Slack just as easily, except to get a faster answer probably. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and there's a whole like beginners channel on Slack that uh, is full of just incredibly, incredibly wonderful, helpful people. Um, so yeah, I, I think those are ordered properly. I would say Slack first and then, you know, a discourse if that's your thing. Cool. All right. Um, how would, how would someone start using Elm at work? What's the best approach to that? If you're currently using JavaScript? Yeah. So the, definitely the most successful approach that I've heard, and this is how we did it. And it's how most of the success stories I've heard, except for consultancies, um, have done it is incrementally. Uh, so consultancies, sometimes they can do a greenfield project. If like a client's like, I don't care what you make this in, just make it. And then you're going to maintain it. Um, and you know, there's, um, uh, Amitai Bernstein, um, has given some talks about, uh, he gave a talk at Elm Europe, like, uh, what was it? 2017, maybe, um, called like Elm from the CTO's perspective. And he kind of just basically explained like how his consultancy uses Elm as a competitive advantage. Um, but I think uh, the, the most common method is not Greenfield. The most common method that, that leads to a successful outcome is doing it incrementally. So just starting, like pick one page and something just lowest stakes possible, just absolute minimize risk, minimize risk, minimize risk, and just be like, we're going to take this one page and we're just going to rewrite part of it in Elm. We're going to implement like part of this like new feature in Elm. 
And the key thing is to just make it like the smallest, simplest, most basic project you can, um, but get it all the way into production. So the nice thing about this approach is it has two really good properties. One is that uh, as you get it all the way into production, you have to solve all of these things that are sort of like coming up for the first time. Like, oh, how do we integrate Elm into our build process? How do we like deploy the Elm app alongside our JavaScript stuff? Um, You get all that sorted out. And then now your next Elm project can be something incremental on top of that. And it's not as like big or as scary. You can just be like, oh, we'll just build on the infrastructure we already set up to do this really small thing. And, you know, the next project will just get to reap all the benefits and won't have any more setup work to do. And the second thing, and the, and the more important of the two, is that because it's really small and really low risk, if it doesn't go well, you're not under like all this pressure to like, oh my God, what do we do? What do we get ourselves into? If it doesn't go well, you can just be like, okay, well, uh, never mind. We'll just back it out and, you know, go back to what we were doing before. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, how much, how much time did you really lose on this one small thing? Um, so it makes the stakes a lot lower. And that, that means that it's just like a lot more appetizing. So the problem with like, in contrast, waiting for a greenfield project is that it's like, okay, so we've got this big new feature. We're going to do it in Elm. So it's going to be really great and amazing. Um, well, now let's say you get partway into this project and it's like behind schedule because you're using this language for the first time and nobody's like ramped up on it. Or maybe it turns out there were some unexpected difficulties in getting it into your integration. And like now this big high profile, high stakes project is behind schedule and people are like, what are you doing? Have you considered just not doing it in Elm? Like <laughs> how, how long would it take if you just scrapped it and rewrote it in the thing that everybody on the team already knows? Right. So it's, it's kind of like a recipe for failure almost where it's like, it, it's not really setting up for success as the default outcome. It's setting up for a lot of risk. And, and so for kind of for failure is the default outcome. Whereas the incremental approach is just like, it's, it's this harmless little thing you know? Um, and that's what we did. We just started out with one part of one page, which is absolutely a way you can use Elm, you know, just embed it in, in one section of the page. Users won't care that part of your page is done in Elm and the rest of it's in React or whatever else. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, I know people who've done this with React, with Angular, with Ember, um, with Vue. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think people have done it with every combination of things now, um, yeah. the major frameworks. And, uh, and then just, just let it grow. You know, if, if that one project goes well, then try it again on the next project and try expanding that and expanding that. And that's what we did. And we, we started out with an app that was a hundred percent react, I guess not hundred percent. We had some like legacy stuff, you know, like from the pre react days too, but, um, mm-hmm. sure. uh, and, and then it just grew and eventually it just became, you know, everybody, like anytime anyone wanted to build a new thing, they're like, well, obviously we'd use Elm for this new thing. And so the, the Elm side of the code base just grew and grew. And now we just have this tiny amount of legacy react, um, and everything else is an Elm. And, uh, it all just started from, you know, one small low risk project. And that seems to be this, the recurring success story that we hear. Nice. Yeah. I was a consultant at a place one time and they're like, Hey, we're going to use Elm for everything going forward or a lot. We're going to use it for a lot of things. And I wrote, I helped write one small form in Elm, uh-huh. super small project, like a week or less. And that was kind of it. It went to production and moving on. We're not going to use Elm anymore, but that, that code's probably still there. Sure. Yeah. And, and like that can happen, right? There, there's so many different reasons that technologies like do or do not turn out to be the right fit for an organization. Um, and I, I think that it's, it's sort of like presumptuous to assume that like, just because like one person on the team has a really good experience that that's just like going to translate automatically to everybody else. Like one of the things that I've learned is, um, 
like programmers have preferences, you know, and it's, it's fine. It's just the way, the way of the world, like the technology that I love and I'm super productive with somebody else might try it out and be like, you know, I, I see there's something here, but like, it's just not for me or like, I, you know, I'm, it's just not, it's too different from what I'm used to. Um, and, and also organizations have different needs. Like sometimes it might be like, Hey, uh, maybe this technology is better, but like, we don't have time to ramp people up. We got these deadlines we got to hit. And like, you know, we, we can't pause for making technical investments right now. Um, there are just so many reasons that I, I think it's, uh, it's best to just, you know, uh, not put yourself in a position to overcommit. Yeah. And what about from the employer side? What are the benefits for employers to use Elm or not? I mean, there's the main, like number one, far and away biggest benefit is hiring. Um, I would say like, I mean, there's definitely the technical benefits of like, you know, things are easier to maintain and, um, and like the code's more reliable. It doesn't crash as often. Uh, but for us, I mean, that was the transformational thing to be honest. Um, and I, I, I think that's, I, I guess I'm like kind of giving TypeScript a lot of credit here. I don't actually like really use TypeScript. So I don't, I don't really know, like, I'm assuming that it makes the JavaScript um, like reliability stuff a lot better. Um, but I don't really personally know how much better. I just know like the people I know who use both like strongly prefer Elm. But um, but let, let's assume that for the sake of argument, TypeScript, you know, makes things a lot more reliable and maintainable. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. The thing is, there is a huge imbalance in the number of people who love and want to use Elm at work like to the point where they're willing to switch jobs for it um, versus the number of companies that are offering Elm positions. Um, So that means that the number, like whichever companies are willing to hire Elm developers, just get this like influx of excited, like really, (laughs) I'm going to say above average to to be mild about it. But like uh, the, the people who tend to use Elm are on average, I think like a lot more experienced, uh, we can say like, uh, quantitatively and also just like, because of the Elm community's values, I think on average also like nicer and easier to work with, um, than what you find on average in the JavaScript community. Um, there's like, there's a selection bias there. So the companies that have been hiring from sort of the Elm talent pool, I think have really benefited from this. So this is not just something I've experienced firsthand, which absolutely it is. I, I honestly, I would say, I said to people, I don't remember how we ever hired anyone for front end work before Elm. Um, because we actually, I mean, literally, after me, we went two years before we made another front end hire. I mean, we were we we had open positions the entire time, um, and our, our company's got a lot going for it. I, I work at No Red Ink, where we make software for teachers. It's like something you place where you can like feel good, you know, about what you're doing. Um, and and yet, uh, and we were using at the time like before Elm, it was like um, Rails on the back end, which you know Rails was at the time quite popular, um, and uh, and actually. Uh, we, we, we had experience trying to hire both before and after we started using and promoting that we were using React, um, which, you know, React was at the time, like we were also very early adopters of React. Um, and uh, at the time, like React was not as popular as it was now, but it was, you know, we'd had the experience of trying to have a very vanilla tech stack and also um, a somewhat novel like JavaScript tech stack. Nothing. We, could, we couldn't find anybody um, that fit our needs. And then, once we started advertising, we were using Elm. 
we started getting way more applicants. And, and then we, our first front-end hire after those two years was actually someone who wanted to specifically join the company because of Elm. And that was true of our next like N hires. Like uh, Almost all of them were people who like were attracted <laughs> to us because they wanted to use Elm. Um, so like being able to post in the jobs channel on Elm Slack that you're hiring Elm developers is just a, a huge, I mean, it's like a cheat code for hiring. Um, <laughs> And again, this is not just me saying this. This is like other companies have said the same thing, you know, who, who've been hiring Elm developers. Um, and, you know, I mean, theoretically, at some point that evens out uh, and, and like, you know, it, it, maybe the, the market for Elm developers someday will be more like the market for developers in general, where it's it's very much like, you know, uh, every company is just trying to trying to find them and can't find them. Um, but I mean most companies have the opposite problem where they're just, you know, trying to find good people and good people are hard to find. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's much less true if you, if you can offer people the opportunity to use Elm at your, at your place of work. Yeah. So now I want to switch a little bit to the, the writing process. Cause I'm interested in that. Sure. You were writing in Google docs, your not your novel in Google docs, and then you tried using making your own thing. What are you, what are you using today? Well, like I said, I mean, right now for like novel writing, I, I just haven't been doing it. <laughs> been, yeah. uh, what uh, I mean, what did I, you use for Elm in Action? Oh, um, <laughs> uh, Microsoft Word. Um, okay. Not, not by choice. Uh, I, I asked Manning like, hey, what should I write this in? And they said Word. So I wrote it in Word. Um, that was about it. Uh, I understand that now there are more options. I mean, I, I think there are more options than when I started writing it, I think. Um, I think they've, they've opened up and like given more options for different formats because word obviously would not have been my first choice. Um, mm-hmm. To be honest, I would have preferred like Markdown or something like that, but uh, uh, whatever. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's done now. And uh, um, th- that's the only thing that I've used word for is, is that book. And I don't think I'll use word again. Um, okay. But <laughs> what about, what about the code samples? How did you get those into the book? Uh, how did you make sure they were correct? Ah, um, I mean, I just just wrote them down separately. I guess I had a little bit of an advantage here in that because the structure of the book is about building up one big app, um, mm-hmm. I basically have a Git repo, which also is like on my GitHub. You can just you know download it. Um, and so uh, as I was going through and building up each example, um, you know, it was it was about primarily about evolving this big code base over time. Um, I would just make checkpoint. I just make a tag um, every time I hit like a you know, a chapter or a subsection of a chapter. Um, and then I, you know, wherever I was, I would just copy paste them out of my, you know, already compiling working local example and just, mm-hmm. you know, paste it into word. Um, so that's pretty much it. Okay. And how long did it take you to write the book? Um, <laughs> started to finish about four years, um, which is about double, I think the norm, I think the the norm is like in the, like, you know, two years or maybe under range. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no one to blame for that, but myself, I, I really like, I had this ambitious goal of, um, of trying to, you know, build up this application from start to finish. And now I have a pretty real understanding for why most authors don't do that. Um, which is that, uh, it turns <laughs> out that anytime, you know, we were talking earlier about like refactoring, you know, uh, pros, uh, Anytime you make a change later on to the application, like I, like I get to chapter six and I'm like, oh man, I really need this this code to work in this way. Mm. Well, I need to have evolved the code in a way such that I arrive at where I need to arrive at in the previous chapters. So now I have to go back to every previous chapter and edit. And like the further and further along I get, it yeah. becomes this like, you know, not, not quite factorial, but it's like almost like it, everything becomes, uh, you know, 
proportional to how much I've written so far, like how much effort it is to make a change to the like current code base. Cause I have to go back and like make all previous chapters agree with that change. Right. Um, did and not did just you that. keep track of that in, in Git branches or something? Uh, I mean, I, I had everything in Git, but it, honestly, it didn't help that much because the main toil there was was not so much updating the code um, as it was just going back and updating the the written word. The, the because uh, yeah, yeah, because it, it it wasn't just that I needed to make the code incrementally evolve to get there, but also I needed the explanations to evolve to incrementally get there. So yeah. because I'm changing the code now, I have to change the explanation for that code, and then that can break other things. And yeah, so I, I honestly, by the end of it, um, I was I was surprised that it that it all come together because i i was yeah. like you know i mean i had this whole you know like here's all the things that i need to teach i need to cover them in like chapters that make sense each chapter needs to be about a particular thing it needs to be cohesive um and then also i have this additional restriction that i've imposed upon myself uh which you know like through no 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 nobody's fault but my own um that also each individual chapter needs to feel like you're at, you know adding a feature from a feature request or making a change you know just as like like every single chapter uh, starting with chapter two opens with you know, like there's this like fictitious manager like your manager asks you to do this and the manager is like kind of a character in the book a little mm. bit mm-hmm. um and uh and so they're always asking you like you know oh uh customers really love this thing but we want to try and make it do this thing differently um so i had to come up with you know ways to th- things that were kind of plausible like something that a manager might um like theoretically ask you to add um so that it would like hopefully feel like you're actually, you know, building an application like, like you would, you know, on the job. Yeah. I think that's, that sounds like a really fun way to learn a language by going through a fictional fictitious story and building it along with the book. Yeah. I mean, that was the theory. And, and so far people seem to really like the book. So, um, uh, I, I like to think that it was all worth it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's commendable that you did it that way. It sounds really ambitious. It was. I, I, to be honest, I don't think I'd do it again that way. But um, but now that I have done it, I, I can at least be proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where where is the best place for people to find you and your book online? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm on Twitter at uh, RT Feldman, um, and uh, there's uh, a link to the book in my profile. Um, if you want to go, you know, pick up a copy. The first chapter is free, so you can also just go read it and you know see if you like my style. And if you like the first chapter, then you know uh, the other chapters are written by the same person. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and also that, like you mentioned earlier on, there's also I have a front end master's course. Um, so I have a beginning Elm workshop and also a uh, an advanced Elm workshop. Um, so the advanced Elm workshop actually covers more than the book. The beginning stuff there's like there's a lot of overlap between the book and, and the beginning Elm workshop. Um, so if, if workshops, you know, sort of a video format is more your thing, then you can kind of get the same thing on there. Um, I also have a bunch of Elm talks on YouTube. If you just search for Richard Feldman Elm, um, there's lots of results about uh, stuff I've given at Elm conferences and other conferences about Elm and um, just like a lot of lot of hours <laughs> if you're interested in all that. And about just functional programming in general, I think. Sure. Yeah. Some of that too. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is fun. 